This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Monday, February 26th, 2024. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the weekend's box office numbers. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com. And joining me on today's episode is Slash Film staff writer and box office analyst, Ryan Scott. Hey, Hey everyone, how's it going? All right, Ryan, I want to kick things off here with a listener email from uh, Samson in Florida. He says, hey, gang, a listener from Florida via Spotify. On Thursday's episode, y'all discussed the cost of releasing movies to theaters and referenced the print cost possibly not applying. I was hoping you could elaborate on this. Are the movies that we see in major theaters no longer shown on film? One of the key reasons to go to a, a theater for me is seeing the movie on film, similar to listening to music on vinyl as opposed to digital. So this would be kind of a bummer. So, uh, Ryan, I, I mean, I hate to be the bearer of bad news for this uh, listener, um, but it's been a long time since the major theater chains actually projected film. I think it could probably be traced back to Avatar, right? Like theater owners knew how big of a deal James Cameron's Avatar was supposed to be when that came out in 2009. So they basically ditched their film projectors and upgraded to digital ones at that point. Um, did you have any, any thoughts on this subject at all? Uh, yeah. So, yeah. And and, I mean, there's been much, much, much discussion for a long time about Hollywood's transition to digital. Uh, this goes back to attack of the clones and George Lucas being the first person to film a movie entirely on digital. And, you know, when you move away from filming a movie on film, eventually that was probably going to translate to not projecting on film. That's why it's such a big deal when, you know, like with Oppenheimer last year, when you have like these, when you talk about seeing a movie in 70 millimeter or 35 millimeter, that means the actual print that relates to the size of the film print or IMAX often has an actual film print. And so that's why that's a big deal and coveted by certain people. I will say. And also like not always, not all IMAX though, right? Like, the, oh, no, no, they, but often like that's yes. why you'll see like those big film prints. Like you'll see like for Oppenheimer, they were showing the miles long film print, you know? So, so sometimes that's why that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, so, like, if seeing film is something that's important to you, you will occasionally see uh, a Joker even uh, a handful of years ago got some, um, I saw it in 35 millimeter, you know, that that so that happens every once in a while. Um, I will say this. You, as the viewer, uh, have been going to the theaters and saying, like, this is, you know, one of the reasons I thought I was going to the theater. Um But if it's one of those things, maybe if it was invisible to you, perhaps it didn't, you know, like it's the idea that I think a lot of it is that if you're at a good theater, we've heard a lot of complaints from people like AMC theaters, these other theaters where the projectors are bad. The sound is bad. There's problem. But let's say you're at a good theater. 
if it's a good digital projector, a good screen, a good operator, a, a, a good situation, there is still a lot of value for my money in that big screen theatrical experience with digital, good digital projection. You know, digital is mm-hmm. not a bad word is I think the thing is that I that's all I would say is that is that it's still that good digital presentation is much better than what you can get at home. And yeah. so I will say that, you know, don't look at that as a dirty word. Yeah, I think, you know, when that uh, conversion happened with a lot of the theaters, um, that came with like a series of positive and negative. I, I think like the downside is that as an audience, you're losing that sort of tangible magic of like actually seeing a piece of film spooled through a projector. And then most of the projectionists lost their jobs. I think um, I was looking this up before we started recording. And by 2015, 90% of movie screens across the globe had converted to digital. And I think speaking to that quality issue you were just mentioning, like a case could be made that this conversion was probably the beginning of the end in terms of theater chains really caring as much about great presentation as they probably should. Like instead of having a devoted employee whose job it is to make sure every movie looks as good as possible while they're swapping out the reels as the movie plays, now somebody can basically just like click play and walk away and do other things, right? And I think there's been a lot of, um, yeah, as you mentioned, like there's just the the quality has suffered at a lot of these big theater chains because of that. But like from a business standpoint, the transition, I think, makes a lot of sense because studios don't have to pay to physically create all of those film prints anymore and like transport them around the country. They can basically just do it now digitally. I think it's called the DCP, the uh, Digital Cinema Package, I think is what that stands for, Um, where they basically just send like the equivalent of like a USB drive, like a thumb drive or whatever to the movie theaters uh, with the actual file on it. and like sometimes, you know, the, the like smaller movies actually benefited from this too, because like sometimes the cost of actually making a physical film print was so expensive that like smaller, like indie movies and stuff couldn't afford to do that. But with digital, that's not really as much of a concern anymore. So, um, and also like the, the idea of like, you know, if you're a movie theater and you have two copies of Oppenheimer, you're obviously limited with how many uh screenings per day you can run that that movie just based on like the physical yep. limitations and and now digital you don't have that problem either so um you know smaller movies can slip in and maybe get a wider uh wider distribution than they might have gotten otherwise and you know there can be more uh showings throughout the day of all sorts of different types of movies and stuff so yeah i mean there are definitely like trade-offs but i would agree with you ryan that like it, it kind of takes a little bit of legwork on your part now if you really care about seeing a movie on film. Like, you just got to be careful about how they're advertised and make sure, you know, because a lot of places like in LA and New York and whatever big film cities, they'll have repertory theaters that like proudly boast about showing movies on 35 millimeter, but it might be tougher to find in other places around the country. So I would just say, like, call your local independent theaters and ask them if they actually project movies on film, if that's something that you really care about. Yeah. Like for instance, like I live in Austin where the Alamo draft house is a big thing and, and there's a, they will often, you know, show things on film and they have a series out here called terror Tuesday. And I have seen some cool old movies on film prints and like, there's a charm to that, but also like if I'm being very honest, sometimes those film prints don't look great. 
And mm-hmm. like, I, I would almost rather see it just kind of looking better than it, you know, cause like they're really messy sometimes. So I don't know. It's, I have mixed feelings on it, but yeah, it is something I guess for general people to just be aware of that. Like, you know, you might think of movie theaters as this thing where they're projecting film, but that hasn't been the case for some time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's dive into the, uh, the box office information that you're about to provide me with for, for what happened this past weekend. Um, I think driveway dolls is a movie that we talked about on Friday's episode. Uh, we did a big spoiler conversation about that. Um, this is Ethan Cohen's new movie. He and uh, Trisha cook, his wife, uh, basically like co-directed the film, even though Ethan Cohen is the only one with the official directing credit there. But uh, tell me how that movie performed, uh, at the box office this weekend, Ryan. Um, in a word poorly, uh, it, uh, look, it wasn't expected to make a lot of money. Uh, focus hasn't delivered, a an outright, like big theatrical hit in a minute. Um, and this is unfortunately no different. Uh, made $2.4 million, uh, landed at number eight, uh, just barely below Wonka, which is in its 11th weekend. Um, so, you know, yeah, not great. Uh, played on over 2,200 screens, just over a thousand dollar per screen average, which is, you know, okay uh yeah i mean it, you know it's not great um this this isn't going to be one of those movies that has like a huge international footprint either um you know so it's probably probably going to make like less than 10 million dollars overall i mean it, it's it's you know which is not great uh the only thing is that supposedly the budget was something like 15 to 18 million so it's not like they spent a fortune on it um and my understanding is that focus features has essentially pivoted their entire business model to sort of like have premium VOD be the bulk of where their money's coming from. So Mm. they're sort of doing the old IFC thing of using the theatrical release to promote the inevitable VOD release. Uh, Mm. We don't ever get VOD numbers, really. We sort of see charts, so we don't really know how well that's working out for them on a case-by-case basis. But supposedly, they've been able to pivot their business model around that. So, you know, I don't know. It would still be nice if this movie had done better, but it also is maybe not like an outright financial disaster for the studio or anything it's just that it's not really helping theaters that much yeah uh well i guess on the other end of the spectrum uh bob marley one love has passed 100 million dollars in 10 days so that movie is still seems to be sort of cranking along doing very well uh, almost at 111 million worldwide um uh i'm sorry actually i think that number might be a little yeah sorry it's 120 million worldwide so slightly differing numbers between box office mojo and the numbers i apologize uh but yeah almost uh over 71 million domestic and its budget was 70 million so it's pretty much covered that budget domestically uh just shy of 50 million dollars internationally so far so this one could conceivably get to if it goes very well around 250 worldwide Uh, that's maybe a best case scenario right now um it should at least get to 200 uh maybe you know, 210, which would triple your budget, which, you know, pretty much all the time is, is going to get you, it may not profit directly theatrically, but that's going to get you into the green over the life of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a good, it's, it's looking good. Um, crowd pleaser helping out for sure right now. And, uh, probably going to see more music biopics as a result. Yeah, as if Hollywood could ever quit that genre. You know, it's just yeah, seems well, like yeah, but that... no, it's working, right? Like it's and I, I was talking a little bit with some other people about this, but like it's interesting that like this movie is doing as well as it did, and like the Whitney Houston biopic did not. Whereas like I would have thought Whitney Houston would be at least as big of a name as Bob Marley, if not more. You know, and it's interesting how poorly that movie performed relative to this one. 
I had um, to wonder how much of that had to do with the marketing, though, because like I feel like people didn't even know that that Whitney Houston movie came out. It was like right around December. It was like right around Christmas or something. And like it did not get the same uh, push in terms of I, I'd been seeing that one love trailer for what feels like months in the theaters leading up to the release of that movie. And I don't know if I ever saw a, a trailer for the Whitney Houston movie in theaters before something else. Like, yes, I saw the trailer online one time or something. Um, yeah. But I, I wonder if that has something to do with it. But it's entirely possible. But I, it, like, w- w- come what may with those factors, it is interesting, right? It, it's just something yeah. I like. If you just look at like you know, music sales to music sales, like Whitney Houston is right. You know, I, I mean, the Bodyguard soundtrack is one of the highest selling albums of all time. You know, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah, I think we're just going to see more of this. And if nothing else right now, it's nice that theaters have something to hang their hats on uh, more than one thing, actually. Uh, uh, you know, if we look at, uh, we'll talk about it more in a minute, but uh, anime once again came to the rescue and uh, Madam Web fell off a cliff, uh, you know, 61% drop, but that was expected, uh, made only $6 million. Uh, no need to pick on it. We all know that movie's not doing well. Um, yeah. Wonka is, I mean... I just unbelievable. It's almost six hundred twenty million dollars worldwide. I just I cannot believe how much money that movie has made. Um, the Beekeeper quietly continuing to stay in the top ten. Uh, just shy of one hundred and fifty million dollars worldwide, highest grossing uh, twenty twenty four release so far this year. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we get a Beekeeper sequel here shortly. Uh, announced. I was wondering if you thought that like there there might be like a threshold that they were waiting to you know, uh, to hit financially before they actually announced uh, a sequel to that. Uh, I don't, I, they probably didn't have a sequel option. Like they probably had it like loosely, but I'm guessing they have to work out deals now um, and schedules probably uh, figure out like how much of a priority is this? Are they going to try to like pay Jason Statham enough to make this something he does right away? Are they going to try to pay David Ayer enough to make this to do something he does right away? Are they going to take a while to develop it? You know, it's like one of the, so I'm sure those conversations are happening right now. Mm. Um, also, since we, I won't be on the podcast tomorrow, anyone but you will cross $200 million today, which is absolutely bananas. Wow. Um, so good for that movie. Uh, it's one of the highest grossing R-rated comedy, I think, since Ted 2, maybe, if you don't count like the Deadpool movies. Like, it's it's just, it's it's unbelievable what that movie's done, so. Uh, well, you know, good stuff there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, speaking of good stuff, uh, Emma Stone's Poor Things, which is a, a major Oscar contender, the Oscars are coming up in a couple of weeks, I think, um, has just crossed another box office milestone. Tell me about that. Yeah, it uh, it's kind of quietly still been adding money uh, domestically and internationally, you know, ever since the Oscars got announced. And um, uh, it has now crossed $100 million uh, worldwide, uh, which is for a Searchlight Pictures movie, for a... Yorgos Lanthimos movie for this kind of movie, like this sort of, you know, semi expensive art house movie. Like these are the kind of movies that aren't supposed to make this kind of money anymore. Um, you know, cause I would say this is even less commercial than like everything everywhere all at once was. Um, but, uh, uh so it's made 32.4 million domestic, which is pretty good, but it has done very well internationally, uh, making, uh, over $68 million overseas. So, um, yeah, this has now like become like a kind of, you could almost call it like an art house blockbuster level of like, you know, hit, uh, yeah. for, uh, heading into the Oscars. And, you know, if it does very well at the Oscars, you bet it's going to do very well on VOD then possibly do, you know, goose the box office again. So, uh, this is, I like to see this. I like to see these Oscar movies do well. I like to see this kind of movie make money. Uh, it's good for everyone. It's, it is, it, 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 yes, studios will make these movies, 
for the awards, but it definitely helps if, if that can still generate money. So I think that this is good for people who claim they want to see original movies in theaters. Um, I only say claim because inevitably every single year we have a situation where people say they want to see a type of movie, that type of movie comes out and it bombs. But right now, luckily, Poor Things is not that movie. Poor Things is doing very well. Excellent. Uh, okay, let's take a break and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about uh, some lessons that we can learn from the box office this past weekend. Okay, Ryan, you mentioned that anime is back to save the day. Uh, tell me what's going on with the the latest. I mean, this has been, this is by far uh, not the first time that this has happened, right? So tell me what the, the latest chapter in this um, this ongoing installment of anime is here to save movie theaters. Tell me what's going on here. Yeah, so uh, we had, uh, look, I'm not even going to try to say this title all together here, but uh, the latest Demon Slayer movie. Uh, which is subtitled to the Hashira training uh, hit theaters. And it uh, came in at number two, uh, narrowly missing the number one spot, uh, made 11, just shy of $11.5 million. Um, and that was on less than 2000 screens. Now, so here's something that we don't talk about enough uh, is the per screen average. So uh, Bob Marley, one love top the box office. It played on almost 3,600 screens. Demon Slayer played on 1950. And it made, you know, almost as much money. So it's per theater average was over $5,800. So those theaters saw all each individual screen that was showing that movie m- movie saw a lot of business, which means like more popcorn, more soda, more this. So, the, and because an anime movie is not really something that like has to be hugely advertised and the theaters that carried it benefited from it greatly, like in what would otherwise be probably sparsely populated screens that weekend. So, you know, that can't be, under appreciated like that that is a big deal it's the Mm -hmm. same way that like godzilla minus one was able to help a lot of theaters last year like you know those theaters would have been otherwise largely unoccupied and instead they have really full screens uh by devoted audiences now yes this is probably going to fall off a cliff next weekend but that's okay like these anime movies are not made with north america in mind they're not depending on this money but now we are seeing Ever since 2021, loyal North American audiences turning out in reliable numbers for these movies. And uh, the Demon Slayer franchise since 2021 has made over $80 million in North America. That is not nothing by any means. We had Mm -hmm. movies like Dragon Ball Super Broly top the box office in 2022. Uh, We had The Boy and the Hair. And last year, this is not a fluke. This is continuing to happen where anime is either topping the charts, coming close to it and delivering um uh, hits where there wouldn't have been one before uh but prior to the pandemic so this is kind of fascinating to me is there a takeaway that you have from this in terms of like do you think other studios are just looking at this and going like okay what anime projects do we have that we can you know put together like you know how the um the chosen movies we were talking about recently like it's basically just episodes of a tv show packaged together like do you think that anime shows are going to start doing that where they just package together a few episodes and say, Hey, come see this because clearly there's an appetite for people to see this stuff on the big screen. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because so first off, just to point out the chosen this season has been putting out each its episodes in packages. I know we talked about this a few weeks ago, but this weekend, for example, the chosen season four episodes four through six was in its second weekend and made another $1.8 million. So I think that the, the chosen this season is standing to make about $30 million. 
um, like all told for the packages there. And what's interesting about that is I'm glad you brought it up relative to this is that what I found out as I'm not an anime guy is these last two Demon Slayer movies are packaged episodes. So what it is, is it's the last couple of episodes from the prior season and the and the new episode from the upcoming season, which has yet to be released, which I guess is a large part of the draw. Ah. So and then it kind of is packaged together as a movie. Now, our very own Raphael, who writes about anime for us all the time, informed me that this is very common in anime, that uh, episodes will be packaged together as like a feature. That's that's not uncommon. But uh, the idea that, again, this is essentially TV coming to save the day at the box office is fascinating. Uh, wow. So I have no doubt that this is going to be a thing that, that continues to happen. But what I, my takeaway is, if you're asking for a takeaway from me, is that we, we've been talked we've talked an awful lot about the bad of the pandemic era at the box office, things that are negative, things that suck, things that, you know, are, are uh, discouraging. What I am encouraged by is the fact that that. North America and Hollywood must now pay attention to the money that is on the table here with anime and these Japanese imports so that even if the box office stabilizes, even if we get back to a place of normalcy, they're not going to leave this money on the table in the future. This will continue to be a thing. These audiences will continue to be catered to because there is money there and the proof is now in the pudding. So yeah. this will be a thing that even once things get back to a new normal, this will be there and it will be an audience that wasn't there before. And I think that's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Uh, okay. So then the next story we have is probably going to sound familiar to our audience is uh, Gladiator 2's budget is reportedly so big that it's guaranteed to disappoint at the box office. Um, my understanding, Ryan, is that a, a recent report came out that said that uh, the budget for Ridley Scott's Gladiator 2, which is supposed to come out, I think, around Thanksgiving or November yeah, it's this in year, November. Yeah. Uh, is like $310 million. Um, and <laughs> I think at this point, you can basically like plug and play um, the, the series of events here on the podcast. I bring up a story where a movie has an insane budget and then I'm guessing by now listeners know you well enough to know what you're going to say, basically, and you don't even really have to say it anymore. Um, but I, I did not, I will uh, admit to you that I did not read this story in full and I don't know the financing behind this new Gladiator movie. Do you know if this is like an Apple TV Plus situation where- No, Paramount's like on the Napoleon. hook. Okay, all right. Yeah, so- uh, So- um, <laughs> Here's my thing with this one. Uh, look, I, Fast X costing $340 million, it's absurd. But you have a gigantic cast that all wants to get paid. I'm not saying that you don't have a cast here that wants to get paid. Uh, of course, Denzel Washington is not taking a cut on his rate when he's in Gladiator 2. But, like, uh, is Paul Mescal getting paid? That I don't think so. Um, and look, the Hollywood Reporter, where this came from, this is not coming from nowhere. This is the Hollywood Reporter. And they took the strikes into account. They said that, you know, the stoppage cost about $600,000 a week, and they estimated that to, to add about $10 million to the production. Okay. That doesn't account for... This movie was originally greenlit at $165 million, and let me tell you, even at $165 million, I would be a little cautious about Gladiator 2's prospects. At $310 million? Oh, you have almost no chance of of this working out uh mm. it can and, and here's where this gets concerning paramount did address this within the article and paramount insiders insist the net cost of the 49 day shoot was under 250 million dollars now when you have paramount trying to say oh no don't worry it was under 250 million you're in trouble 
So like, because uh, the odds of them citing the correct figure are low and 250 million for this movie would be absolutely asinine. I, I love Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott's one of my favorite directors of all time. I am thrilled that this movie is happening. I cannot wait to see it. Ridley Scott is known for coming in under budget and like having things in control. This just feels, I don't know how this happened. It's just crazy. I, I don't know. I, I I mean, this is just, because now you have to make like Top Gun Maverick money for this to be an outright success. Or you probably, I, I mean, again, this is all rule of thumb stuff, but even if you keep the marketing very thrifty, your your investments at four hundred million dollars means you have to make roughly eight hundred million globally just to break even. Mm-hmm. Um, I I mean, you know, and yeah, that that would the be four hundred million. You're factoring in advertising there, right? Like that's yeah, what that's that's because yeah, yeah. if you're so what I'm saying is okay. Take that. Let's say the budget was around three hundred million, hundred million dollar marketing campaign, which you can't really get away with less for a movie of this size. Um, so like the original. Gladiator made 460 million worldwide in its day, which would be around 823 million in today's dollars based on my inflation calculations. So, you know, yeah, if this one does exactly what the last one does, but so much has changed in those 24 years. So I don't know. Um, I don't need to drone on about this, but uh, this doesn't really paramount. I don't know, like the, them letting the budget this out, get out of control, really Scott letting the budget get this out of control. It's surprising. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, it, it, it sucks. I, I don't know what else to say about it. Yeah. I do wonder if like, because the original gladiator was such a, didn't it win best picture? Am I? It did win best I'm, picture. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, and like Russell Crowe, it was like, obviously a huge, huge role for him. I know, I don't think he's in the, the second one, or at least he's not being marketed as being in the second one. Like it's, I guess it's possible that he could show up in some sort of cameo for flashbacks or something like that. But, um, I don't know. Like, I guess technically there is a road for this to be, you know, a gigantic blockbuster success, you know, uh, along the lines of its predecessor. And like, you have to assume that that first movie made what it made. And then it's also become, you know, a go-to DVD classic, like in the ensuing 20 years or whatever, like people love this movie. So maybe the audience is there, but yeah, like you're saying, you know, you just, you don't want to rely on, you don't want to be like putting all of your chips on, uh, (laughs) having a sort of like once in a generation hit be the outcome of your movie, if you know, from a business perspective. So I understand why you're, um, you're not thrilled at these numbers, but, uh, yeah, I think all of us are hoping that it, turns out to be great and and a Top Gun Maverick level hit just because uh, I want to see Ridley Scott do more stuff and, and have more leeway and all that in the future. So, you know, yeah, we'll I'm totally goes. rooting for it. Like, I don't want to misconstrue like, but at one hundred and sixty five million dollars, you could have got to four hundred worldwide and fine, more or less. Yeah. You know, so it just sucks that, you know, let's say this movie makes eight hundred worldwide, which would be incredible, by the way. Then you're at a point where like, hey, now we can maybe start making some money, like which is just crazy. So I don't yeah. know. We'll see. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so our last story here uh, is just a a little bit of a look ahead to Dune Part 2, which comes out this coming Thursday night slash Friday. Um, What are you you looking at in terms of the financial prospects of the Dune sequel, Ryan? I am, and a lot of other people are, for the record, it's not just me, I am very, very bullish on Dune Part 2, more so than I would have thought even a few months ago, maybe. Um, so let, let's go back in time a little bit. The first Dune comes out in 2021. This is a, a victim of Project Popcorn, it was dubbed, uh, where all of Warner Brothers' 2021 slate went directly to HBO Max, as well as in theaters. 
Uh, yet Dune still did well. It made 434 million worldwide, including a hundred and basically $110 million domestically, which is a lot for a movie that went directly to HBO max uh, as a movie. People kind of rallied around and 434 million against 165 million budget is good. Uh, so it got a sequel and, um, uh, it, it seems like one of those movies that found a, an even bigger audience on uh, it, sort of post-theatrical streaming and, and people have kind of rallied around the sequel. It, it, it's the first big event film of the year. Uh, it will come out March 1st and, and it's sort of, it feels like people are ready for this. Um, and uh, right now tracking is anywhere between 60 and 80 million um, uh, opening weekend. Uh, for context, the first one opened to 41 million but again, that was uh, sort of uh, pandemic circumstances, HBO Max release. It's complicated. But uh, so the first one stands to make a potentially twice as much. Um, uh, I, I'm bullish. I'm closer to 80 million than I am 60 uh, myself. Uh, the word of mouth uh, coming out of these screenings has been nothing shy of like, you know, Empire Strikes Back level stellar. So I, I don't know. I, I just get the sense that there's something happening with this movie that people are 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 rallying to it. And and I think it's going to do very well. It's that popcorn bucket, baby. It is. All about. But, but you joke. But like that, like, <laughs> but like for real. OK, if that was a popcorn bucket from a movie people didn't care about, like people re- like that actually helps. Like it's like the Barbenheimer thing, right? Like that, that, that level of online buzz can actually become meaningful. Yeah, whoever designed that thing, I I am convinced that they're like a genius and knew exactly what they were doing. Like they I don't knew exactly what they accident. were doing. Yeah. Like, the, but but the point, but yeah, like, but that does help. Like people, it is really. And the other thing that's worth pointing out too is that like Timothy Chalamet uh, is coming off of Wonka, a gigantic hit. Uh, Spider Man No Way Home came out after the first Dune. Zendaya was in one of the highest grossing movies of all time after that. Um, uh, I mean, Austin Butler is in the sequel, who was in Elvis, who is now a bigger star. You have Florence Pugh. Like, so this cast, the second one is even bigger than the first one, and it's younger stars people are rallying around. So you have everything sort of working in this movie's favor. Um, yep. I am, I, I, even though I was not a big fan of the first one, I am super bullish on what this movie's going to do. So, uh, yeah, it's looking good. Excellent. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. My plan right now is to try to see it on Thursday night. And I hope that I'll be able to get somebody on the podcast to do like a deep dive sort of spoiler conversation breakdown type of thing on Friday's episode of the show. So fingers crossed that that's the current plan. We'll see if uh, if that actually holds. But that's what I have uh, in, the, in the pipeline for upcoming shows for the listeners. Um, I think, yeah, that's going to do it for today's episode. You can find much more about the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com. I will link to a bunch of things in the show notes. Uh, Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really does help us out a ton. Tell your friends about the show any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all tomorrow.